Our second reading is from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 12. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry, and they began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. He said to them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which it was not lawful for him or those who were with him, but only for the priests. Or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless, for the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. He went on from there and entered their synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand, and they asked him, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him? He said to them, Which one of you who has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out. Of how much more value is a man than a sheep? So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, Stretch out your hand. And the man stretched it out, and it was restored, healthy like the other. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. The word of the Lord. We are a very busy culture. Uh, most of you know that because that's the life that you live. We're the kind of people that have no margin. It's hard to get a meeting of five people together on a Tuesday or a Wednesday or a Thursday because nobody's available. Old friends that want to get together for lunch have to plan it weeks in advance. Most of you, or not most of you, some of you, m many of you, have no capacity for more people in your life. So even when we talk about things like small groups and say, hey, that's the way to connect in, to get to know other people, many of you feel like, I don't need to get to know any other people. You feel guilty because you're not doing it. You, if you say yes, you have to cancel half the time. We feel like we're constantly on the run. And for some of us, the best thing, the best thing in the world is when you have plans and they get canceled, especially when it's not you that has to cancel them. You're like, oh, it's yeah, I guess we won't. We won't get together. But you had it on your calendar. You get credit for having arranged to get together with somebody. It's perfect. How many of you regularly, regularly take a day, an entire day, to rest, to disconnect, to be quiet, to take a nap, to unplug, to think and pray, and be in the presence of God, and your family. We are a busy and we are a very stressed out culture of people. Stress has been hitting particularly the, uh, the below millennial age, the 12 to 25 year olds, in a way that no age group, no demographic has ever had it hit them. And you guys who are in that demographic know that. You know what you're being hit with. Jean Twang, who's done a lot of studies on both millennials and now what she calls the I generation or Gen Z, those born in the late 90s till about 2015, 
Um, she has studied them and has said they are dealing with incredible amounts of mental health issues in a way that no culture has before, no generation. And even when you account for uh, some other ways, more reporting now, that sort of thing, it is significantly greater amounts. And most of it is tied to stress and anxiety, or a, a significant amount of it is. And so what they're finding is that um, co- even just in a study between uh, 2005 and 2017, so that's basically the edge of millennial to the Gen Z I generation and kind of the meat of our current generation of teenagers and college students, there has been a 50% increase in mental health issues amongst young adults and teenagers. And a 70% increase just in 12 years, a 70% increase in severe psychological episodes where something incredibly disturbing is happening in a, in a young adult's life. A, in a totally separate study in 1985, freshmen were asked, freshmen in college, sorry, were asked, are you feeling overwhelmed? And a little less than 20% said, yes, I feel overwhelmed. So one in five felt overwhelmed. Today, it's 40%. So almost half are feeling completely overwhelmed. And the problem with the, the stress that not only you guys live in, but that we all live in, is that stress was meant, stress was meant to help us escape the saber-toothed tiger, right? You know, the hoarding tribes that are coming after us. It's the fight or flight mode. The, uh, the body shoots out this adrenaline and, and cortisol that causes you to run super fast, be super strong, be totally alert. But when we're under constant stress with the busyness, the social media that lets us know what we're missing out on, how we're not measuring up, and the intensity of the lives that we live in, that's constantly pumping out in our bodies. We never have a release, if you would, from that fight or flight mode inside of us. And as a result, instead of just the intensity to run away from the saber-toothed tiger, we're dealing with bodies that are breaking down, hearts, immune system, reproductive system. We're just breaking down because we're so stressed out. And many of you know that, even those of you who are just 14, 16, you know the stress of seeing people getting into college or making the team or trying to measure up socially, beautifully, whatever, being a part of whatever's happening and you're not. And adults feel it too. We need rest. We need rest. Which is why there was an interesting article that I came across a number of years back um, that actually even predates that by a a woman named Judith Shulovich. She's a, a Jewish writer for the New York Times and other things. And she was talking about how Uh, she needed to recover the Sabbath in her life. And she first started by citing this guy named Shandor Ferenzi. So Shandor was a psychologist who followed after Freud in the early 1900s in Hungary. And he identified a particular problem that he saw that he called Sunday neurosis. Sunday neurosis happened when, at the end of a Sunday, in a Christian culture, when back then you took Sunday off, right? You took Sunday off of work, you went to, the, to mass, and then you had time with your family. At the end of Sunday, people started getting incredibly stressed and anxious. Because over the past 24 hours, they had been suppressing all of the intensity of their work, all the things they needed to get done, essentially hiding from it, right? And they would get to Sunday night, and they, they were suffering from having taken a Sabbath. 
oh my gosh, tomorrow's Monday. What do I do? I'm not ready. And they started feeling the weight and all of a sudden they had those uh, releases inside of them of intensity and adrenaline and fear and anxiety and stress. But Judith said she would get to the end of a Sunday and find that she was suffering not from the Sabbath but from lack of Sabbath. You see, in her 20s, Judith, who lived in New York City, ended up, she turned away from the religion of her youth, which was Judaism. She never went to synagogue. And instead, her Sabbath, which was a Saturday in the Jewish culture, involved going to to brunch, going on bike rides, hiking, art museums, going and doing fun things, hitting up restaurants, going to shows. So her Sabbath was about entertainment and self-fulfillment. And she would get to a Sunday night and feel that complete malaise of what have I just done? What is this all about? And so one day she said she walked into a synagogue on a Saturday morning just to hear the songs and rhythms of her youth. She said what she found was that as a 20-something living in New York, that they worked incredibly hard and they played incredibly hard. And all of it was about performance and achievement. And there was no space for true rest. This is what she writes. Ours is a society that pegs status to overachievement. In the Darwinian world of the New York 20-year-old, everything, even socializing, reading, or exercising, felt like something to accomplish. We even pursue leisure activities with an exemplary degree of professionalism and perfectionism. I think what she's saying is true for us today. We're striving even when we're trying to rest. We need the Sabbath, right? But in Matthew 12, Jesus gets in a lot of trouble because of the Sabbath. You'd think it would be hard to get in trouble before noon on a Saturday, but Jesus finds a way to do it. He defies convention and reinterprets the Sabbath against what everyone agreed with. And it's not that he's saying we don't need to recover the Sabbath, because I think we probably do in some ways, but we need more than the Sabbath. We need a peace and a rest that the Sabbath points to. So the incident, the story goes like this. Jesus is with his disciples. They're in the Capernaum area. It's a Saturday morning. You go to synagogue. He's heading off to synagogue with his disciples, and some of them are hungry. So they stop by the vending machine, which is the local field, and they pluck some grains, of, of, uh, and, and they start eating them, like you know, just a handful of nuts, that sort of thing. The Pharisees, who were rabbis, religious teachers who ran the synagogue, they were the teachers in the synagogue, saw it, and what they said to Jesus was, look, Your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. For a Jew in the first century, the Sabbath was one of the three main identity markers. You see, Israel had gotten into trouble for melding their religion with the culture around them, and 700 years earlier, they had gone into exile in Babylon. In the time that they returned, and in the centuries since, they made it a point to create these boundaries to keep them from ever falling into uh, that, that mixing of their faith with the religions and world around them. And the three main identity markers for a Jew in the first century were circumcision of males, the dietary food laws, how they eat food that was distinct 
from the cultures around them and the observance of Sabbath. Sabbath was something no other culture did. In Rome, you worked seven days a week. In every other culture, you worked seven days a week. But the Jewish people took a day off to rest, to cease from their labor, to be with the Lord and with their family. But by Jesus' day and in the centuries after that, it was no longer just a thing of enjoyment and of restoration. The Sabbath had actually become a source of fear for the average Jew because the lawyers in their midst had come up with all the different ways they had to observe the Sabbath. There's a writing from a couple centuries after Jesus, a Jewish writing that that identifies the 39 different things you can or can't do on the Sabbath. And those 39 are broken down into more. So it included things like no sewing, which also meant no gluing something together or no taping or putting anything together. It involved no dyeing of wool, which is great because I haven't dyed wool on the Sabbath recently. It involved no curing of meats, but thankfully it didn't involve not eating cured meats. It involved no writing or erasing. For those of you who are students, just remind your parents that the 39 things that you're not allowed to do includes no writing, no erasing. But unfortunately, it also includes things like no extinguishing of fires. And literally, literally, if your house caught on fire, you had to get out, let it burn. Now, if somebody was inside and they couldn't get out, you could extinguish it for the sake of the life. But if they got out, you couldn't extinguish it for the sake of the property. And something to do with uh, grinding things and all meant that you couldn't even give medicine on the Sabbath. Well, there was gradations. Like, if you were this sick, no medicine. But if you were definitely going to die, you could get a little medicine. And so there was gradations in that. And basically what had happened was the Sabbath and all the rules built around it was like an electric fence for a dog. So if you've ever seen a poor dog who has dealt with an electric fence, the dog doesn't go right up to the fence they take a couple steps back. They know about the bush line, about the grass line, where they're getting close. They don't even want to get close to that line. And for the Jewish people in Jesus' day, the Sabbath had become an electric fence that they took several steps back from and said, instead of thinking of it as a gift from God to restore them, to orient them to God and what mattered, it became a source of fear and of boundaries and of things you couldn't cross And of course, when we think about things that way, we always come up with not one rule, but 39. And those 39 are broken down into seven more. And those seven are broken down into 10 more after that. So Jesus pushes on their constraints on his disciples. And he tells a story, or he reminds them of a story in verses three and four. Have you not read, like you guys are supposed to be the Bible guys, right? Haven't you read this? Have you not read, verse three and four, what David did when he was hungry and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which it was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests. So Jesus is citing a story that happens in First and uh, Second Samuel. It's the story of David. David was the anointed king. As a teenage boy, he was anointed by Samuel. You are the future and chosen king of Israel. But at the time, Saul was the king. David rises up, of course, kills Goliath, and becomes a general, leading the armies of Israel. So Saul gets jealous, and he tries to kill David and have David killed. 
So David has to flee, and he has a band of, of followers who are close to him and loyal to him, and they're fleeing, and they're hungry. They come to the house of God, which was the tabernacle where the Ark of the Covenant stayed, and while they are there, David goes to the priest and says, we are hungry. Do you have anything? And he said, I don't have anything except for the bread of presence, which was loaves of bread set in the tabernacle according to the law's requirements, and at the end of the day, after 24 hours, the bread came out, and only the priests were allowed to eat it but he gives it to David and his men. They eat it. And meanwhile, one of uh, David's spies sees it happening, goes and reports it to Saul, who has all the priests killed. So Jesus is telling this story on one level, on one level, to say to the Pharisees and the disciples, so whose side are you on, David's or Saul's? Write yourself into the story. But on the the main point of what Jesus is doing in retelling this is he's asking this question, who has the authority to abrogate the law? Who has the authority to say, in this instance, we we can step around the law? And it was implied in that that David could because David was the anointed, the chosen king. The anointed meant, was actually the word for Christ or Messiah, the anointed one. David was the king. And Jesus is implying one greater than David is here. One greater than David is here. And in order to underscore it, he goes a step further and he sort of piles on to these poor Pharisees at this point. When he talks about the priests working on the Sabbath, in verse five, he says, look, the priests have to go into the temple every day, the temple in Jerusalem and offer sacrifices, which means even on the Sabbath, they have to go in and do work. How come they're not breaking the law on the Sabbath by doing work on it? And the reason was because the temple was the presence of God, the high place of God. And really in that instance, God's presence and worship of God superseded that that rule of you've got to cease from work. Jesus then says something, verse six, something greater then the temple is here. Who has authority? Who has authority? And Jesus says in verse eight, the son of man is Lord of the Sabbath. Jesus is declaring something that was was blasphemy. He's saying, the one who gave you the Old Testament law that says this is what the Sabbath is about, I am he. The creator of the universe who instituted the Sabbath and his creation of the world is here in your midst. And so the Pharisees want to get rid of this Jesus. We read, starting in verse nine, he went on from there and entered their synagogue, so it's Saturday morning still, And a man was there with a withered hand, and they asked him, is it lawful? The Pharisees asked Jesus, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him of breaking the Sabbath? And he said to them, which one of you who has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? Of how much more value is a man than a sheep? So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, stretch out your hand, And the man stretched out his hand, and it was restored, healthy like the other. 
But the Pharisees, verse 14, went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. Pharisees knew what was going on here, and they're like, we need to destroy him. Now, what's interesting is the parallel story, which this is directly paralleled in the Gospel of Mark. The parallel story gives us an insight into who they conspired with. It says that the Pharisees took counsel with the Herodians on how to destroy Jesus. I mean, can you believe it? The Pharisees with the Herodians? Pretty big deal, right? I mean, right? What's a Herodian? Come on. I mean, you don't know what that is. So let's start with the Pharisees. We sort of know what the Pharisees are. Um, They were the, just remember this, the Pharisees were not a national political organization. They were a local religious authority. They were rabbis in synagogues. They'd studied the law. They practiced and led worship in synagogues, and they were lawyers who kind of kept people on task. They were actually a conservative protest movement in that day, a conservative protest movement. They were moral legalists, and they were concerned about faithfulness to God's covenant, to God's law, and religious purity. And they wanted to make sure that Israel never fell back into syncretism with the pagan religions. And so they were like, let's, let's return to our roots, let's do everything the right way. The Herodians got that name because of King Herod. King Herod was a puppet king who was uh, in con- who conspired, collaborated with the Romans in order to have his authority. He taxed his people. He pretended to be religious, but wasn't really religious in the Jewish sense of that. He was wealthy and secular, and he had an entire court of people, you know, like the British aristocracy. So the Herodians were the aristocracy, and they had bought into Greek culture and its progressive morals. They stood for everything that the Pharisees stood against. They were everything that was wrong with the national leadership. Think about what happens. Jesus so offends the religious conservatives that they go out and join forces with the secular progressives to destroy Jesus. And that's because No matter which take you're on, there's a difference between religion and the gospel. And religion and religiousness, which takes many forms, is not the gospel. Every religious approach, and I will use the term religious not necessarily to mean people who believe in God, but who have a system of what it means to be in and to be out and the things you must do and achieve and accomplish in order to be in and not out. Every system that is religious says, if I follow the rules, if I obey, then I will be okay. But, of course, you must know exactly what the rules are. And you must create lines and fences that say who's outside of those rules. So Christians do this when they take the gospel and they make it religion. And say, like, oh, you're supposed to be generous with your money. And then they define an exact number of how much you must give. And people who don't give that much clearly aren't as religious. Or how many hours you need to volunteer? Or how many weeks of the month you need to come to church? The answer is five. Here's the interesting thing is both progressive moral relativism, kind of our secular progressive society, and traditional conservatism both come from the same approach. 
they both live out the same approach. The conservative side says you must uphold the traditions. They will say the good people who obey are in and the bad people who rebel and disobey are out. But a moral relativist, a secularist, will say actually the way to be in is the way of self-discovery. That's what it's all about. If you're open-minded, you're in. If you're closed-minded and judgy, you're out. At which point they're judging all the people they disagree with. Both set standards that everyone in their circles have to live up to. And both are judgmental about those with whom they disagree. Every approach out there, every culture out there that's ever existed has a set of rules or work that must be done or standards that you must keep and you must do. If you lived in a collectivist culture like the Far East even today, the, the basic declaration is you matter, you matter because you are bringing honor to the family and the community and the nation. So you, uh, you, you matter only so much as you bring honor to the family and the community, not shame. In religious and conservative and traditional cultures, you matter because you're good, because you obey the rules. And if you don't, you don't. In our modern individualistic culture, it's another set of standards and hoops. You matter because you're successful, because you have found yourself, proven yourself, and earned it. All of us, and every culture ever, all of us are constantly performing, obeying, doing, achieving in order to be accepted or to feel acceptable. There's no rest. There's no rest. Which is why Jesus is declaring himself our source of rest. Matthew does such a great job because he precedes this discussion about the Sabbath and Jesus saying, I'm Lord of the Sabbath with Jesus' declaration at the end of chapter 11. It's right before this, where Jesus says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Even just reading that has a, has a peaceful, restful effect on our minds. Come to me, all you. I know that you are weary and heavy laden. Come to me, all you who labor, who live under the yoke of toil and religion, trying to live up to standards, trying to get into the thing, trying to reach the numbers, all you who are weary and heavy laden by life. Come to me, take my yoke, that bar that went across the ox so that the ox would work and be guided down the path in the field. We all have a yoke on us. And Jesus says, my yoke is easy. Be my disciple, follow me, and you will find rest for your souls. True rest. 
a rest that's deeper than just taking a day to not work. You know, the Sabbath was begun back in Genesis, well, the creation account. We read about that first Sabbath. That first Sabbath, yeah. The first Sabbath, when Jesus, when God, sorry, when God the Creator finished his work, it says, thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the hosts of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. So God didn't rest on the seventh day because he was tired, like, man, that was a hard six days. Like the earth and the mountains and then the distant planets. I'm tired, I gotta rest. He rested because it was finished. It was done, complete. It was good, it was very good. True Sabbath is when the work is completed when it's all done, when there's nothing more to do, which is why you and I can't Sabbath because we are never finished. We're never finished trying to measure up. We are never finished trying to prove ourselves. We are never finished trying to deserve love. We are never finished trying to be accepted. But Jesus, hanging on the cross, cried out, it is finished. And yes, on one level he's talking about his body, but that's not really what he's talking about. He's talking about the work that he came to do that is the work that you think you need to do. All your sins paid for. Your acceptability being brought and bought by his blood on the cross. Nothing more needs to be done to defeat Satan. It is finished. It is finished. Colossians says that Jesus made peace by the blood of his cross. Our rest, our peace, our it is finished happened 2,000 years ago outside of Jerusalem on a cross when the Lord of the Sabbath was crucified in our place. So Jesus invites us to find our rest in him, our rest in Jesus. You and I, we will yoke ourselves to something. You're going to yoke yourself to something. There is something in your life that you have attached yourself to that is the guide for how you're doing it, how you're trying to figure out how to measure up, how to cut the row, how to make sure you've done what you're supposed to do. Every yoke that you yoke yourself to will force you to measure up, prove yourself, and work, but you will never be sure you've done enough to measure up. Get into the college, get the job, get the spouse, make this amount of money, your kids get here, have you done enough? Do you measure up? Jesus says, come to me. Come to me. You are accepted. Come to me. 
find your identity and your worth and your future in me. It is secure because it is finished. But instead, what do we do? When we are struggling in life, when we're falling short of our own expectations or our parents' expectations or our employer's expectations, when the pressure mounts, we get anxious. And when we get anxious, we try to conjure up peace and rest inside of ourselves. And usually we do one of two things. We either try to gain perspective or we try to figure out a path forward. And so gaining perspective is like you're feeling stressed about it. You're like, okay, let me put it in perspective. You know, like I'm not in this part of the world. I'm in America. Okay, it's good. Okay, I, I've got this much money. I'm not really that poor. Okay, we, we do it by putting perspective on things we think we can control, like our health or our money or where we live and how peaceful everything is. Or, or those of us who are more the engineering uh, do it kind of mindset, we like, we come up with a plan. I feel stressed. I feel overwhelmed, but here's the things I can control. Let me take these steps forward and then everything will be okay. It might not be okay. Gaining perspective, doing things are fine, but they have limits. That's not a deep rest. That is you trying to control your anxieties, which there's a need for some of that. We're constantly trying to control that inner murmur inside of ourselves that says you don't measure up. You're not worth anything. Jesus says, find your identity in me. What does that look like? It means going to the gospel again and again. The God's view of me is in Christ. It's not the world's view of me. It's not my achievements view of me. My identity is that I am loved. I'm accepted. I am secure because of Christ. Your identity is not in your kids' future and happiness and success. Your identity is not getting into that college, not getting into that college, getting that job. Your identity is not your achievements. Your identity is not your measurements. Your identity is not your bank account. Look, I'm the pastor of this church. And so as a pastor, I can get anxious at times, right? About like, oh, what's gonna happen next? Do we, are we have enough money coming in? Do I, will I have a job in two years? I mean, you know, culture is more and more against Christianity. It's harder to do this sort of thing. I don't know, will it last? And then I remind myself, you are loved in Christ. This church may not survive, but the kingdom of God will. And you are a child in that kingdom. Be free. Yeah, do the work, but not in anxiousness, but in rest. Richard Lovelace, in his book that I've quoted many times, writes this about where we try to find our rest and where we should. He writes, Below the surface, many Christians are guilt-ridden and insecure and draw the assurance of their acceptance with God from their sincerity their past conversion, their recent religious performance, or their avoidance of observable sins. Few start each day with a thoroughgoing stand upon the gospel platform, you are accepted. 
completely trusting in the work of Christ as the only grounds for our acceptance. Most of us, most of us could benefit from restoring a Sabbath in our lives. Days of quiet, unplugging, ceasing work, resting. But all of us desperately need to find the true rest, the lasting peace that is offered by Jesus. Let's pray. God, in the midst of our busyness and anxiety, our fears of measuring up, of being left out, the inner murmur of our self-loathing and self-reproach about what we've done, failed to do, you say, come to me and you will find rest for your souls. Give us the strength, the eyes, the heart to come to you, Jesus, the only source of rest and peace. In whose name we pray, amen.